This morning we come to the two most perplexing verses in the book of Romans. Uh, some have called them the two most perplexing verses in the whole Bible. I think that's a stretch. But certainly in the book of Romans, if you're going to get confused in understanding uh, this uh, critical book in the Bible, it's these two verses. Uh, you can turn with me in your journals. It's page uh, 32, I believe. Um, and it's Romans chapter 7, verse 15. It says, For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. And then to the second half of verse 18. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, how many of you can relate to those words? Okay. Uh, I think that's... Look, look at that. I mean, I, I'm not sure there are any other two verses in the book of Romans we would all raise our hands on. Um, but this is our common experience. We can all say uh, we've set our sights higher at times and we've fallen short. There are times we've made resolutions and we've been unable to fulfill them. Uh, we get all that. But the question this morning is not, is this common? The question is, is it normal? Is this all there is? Is this to be what we expect to characterize the Christian life? that we aspire to do good, but we are unable. Is that to be uh, settled into as the norm of Christian experience? We know it's common, but is it normal? That's the question in front of us. And I want to suggest that the answer to that question will determine the entire, your entire Christian life. Because if you buy into that, what you're saying is God has the power in Christ to get me to heaven, but he does not have the power here on earth to change my life. Do you really believe that? Do you, uh, <laughs> um, when I was in graduate school, uh, we, we were to dig into this chapter and uh, write an essay. And I was shocked. One of my friends uh, wrote his position paper defending the fact that this is the norm of a Christian experience. And he had 17 reasons in, in his paper why he uh, was arguing for that fact. Uh, fortunately, I wrote my paper on the other side, and I had 19 reasons why uh, this could not be what we settle for as Christians. Now, to bring it into clearer focus, the Apostle Paul uh, does something vulnerable here. It's always nice when a writer of a book of the Bible gets vulnerable, and the Apostle Paul gets vulnerable in verses 8 and 9. Uh, it begins, I'm going to begin the second half of verse 7. 
He says here, for if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you should not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. And then he summarizes his, his experience of covetousness by saying, for apart from the law, sin lies dead. Now most uh, Bible commentators agree that when Paul's talking about covetousness, what he's talking about is lust. He's talking about one of the uh, frailties of, of, for most of us, uh, the inability to control what we look at and what we inside long for. Now, what, what Paul's doing here is he's taking one of the commands, but he's taking it from just the letter of the law and the way Jesus did. He is expounding on the spirit behind the letter. Let me give a couple illustrations. Jesus said, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit murder. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with his friend has already committed murder in his heart. He said, if you uh, call someone a fool, you're liable to the, the fire of hell. So what Jesus is doing is he's taking the, the base written law but he's giving the spirit behind it and applying it to our thoughts, our attitudes, our words that we say that, that it's possible to murder someone without pulling the trigger. And from God's perspective, if we hate someone, if we snub someone, uh, those are examples of murder just as much as if we did pull the trigger, poison them or whatever. Then Jesus took this one of covetousness, and he said, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. Okay, well, that's fine. I mean, I've never committed adultery either, and I can feel good about myself. But, but Jesus said, but if you look at a woman inappropriately, you have committed adultery with her in your heart. So you see, he's taking the written law and he's giving the spirit of the law behind it, which finds a lot more application. And when you live as a follower of Jesus Christ, God has a way of expanding the, the baseline law and applying it to a lot of other areas of our lives and dealing ever more deeply with the crud that's inside. So the Apostle Paul here is taking the 10th commandment, thou shalt not covet. It specifically says this, thou shalt not covet uh, your neighbor's house, thou shalt not covet your neighbor's wife, uh, not his manservant or his maidservant, his ox or donkey or anything else that belongs uh, to your neighbor. Well, I, haven't, I don't have neighbors with donkeys and oxes and so forth, but I've got neighbors with a Lexus and, and, uh, and uh, uh, Mercedes and, and other things that, that I, I could look at and, and are drawn to. But Paul is getting even more vulnerable. He's dealing with the, the one big one, lust, the one that we don't talk about so much. 
And, and he's including here pornography, which, which back then, I mean, what do they do? Put pornography on the, on the wall of the cave or something. I mean, compared to what we have today. But it all applies. It, it's, those, it's those wayward, dark thoughts that we never put on our resume, but, but that can so easily come out from down underneath the surface. And that's the one Paul is, is using to say, hey, I, I'm, when I tried my best yes. to not lust at a, at a woman, to never look lustfully at, at anyone but my wife, I failed. In fact, the harder I tried, the more of a failure I became. So that covetousness, which was kind of like a nothing to me, it became this consuming thing. Yes. And most of us in some way or another can identify. In fact, I want to encourage you in your journal right now to write in the margin. Uh, you might want to write it small, but, but I want to encourage you to write in the margin what comes to mind when you, when you read these words. I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. When you think of that, what comes to mind for you? What is that? Put it in the margin. Is it bad words that fly out of your mouth sometimes or at least come to your mind? Is, is it gossip? Is it, is it jealousy? Is it, what is it for you? P put, put down there what it is. Let's, let's make this practical. Or, or next to the, those other verses, verse 18. For I have the desire to do what is right, but I don't have the ability to carry it out. So, so what is it? What is it for you that you have a desire to do that you can't do? Go ahead and put that down. Now, I want to give us quickly here seven reasons I can guarantee you these two verses that we are dealing with this morning are not to be considered the norm of Christian experience, that God has better for you. I can guarantee you that for seven reasons, but first I want to tell you a true story. Um, my dad had a nice boat and we enjoyed going out on it, but his neighbor purchased a really nice boat. It's called a cigarette. It has nothing to do with anything you would smoke, um, but it's a sleek uh, speedboat that, that can go 80, 90 miles an hour. I mean, your face is like this, uh, riding in this thing. Well, he bought it brand new, and he went to the, uh, the boat uh, store and purchased it. They lowered it in the water. They gave him the key. He started it up. He drove it home. He docked it behind his house. It was put on the lift. He lifted it up out of the water and it sat there all night. The next day, he couldn't wait to take that bad boy for a ride. So he lowered it into the water. He went inside to pack his lunch, uh, to get his beverages in, in, in their cooler, and uh, 
to call a few friends. Hey, get out in your dock as I'm about to go by. And, um, and, and he got his family together and they went out and they looked across uh, his yard and the boat wasn't there. They walk out, he walked out to the edge of the canal and the boat had sunk. It was, it was in the bottom of the canal and there was no way he could um, retrieve the thing. It had slid off of, of uh, the mooring. What had happened? Virtually every boat in the stern has two plugs uh, that uh, have to be inserted after you purchase it. And the, the guy that sold it to him did not install those two plugs. He drove it home so fast that all the water was drained out as he's flying across the bay. He docked it, lifted it up. If any little water had come, uh, gotten into the bow, it would have drained out during the night. And he had no idea that the plugs weren't in. And when he lowered it in the canal uh, that morning, it sunk. What I'm here to say to you today some of you have been riding around in a boat when you first got saved, and it was exciting. You became a follower of Jesus Christ, and you go, man, this is awesome. I'm a follower of Christ. But the next day or a month later, a year later, you got up, and your boat had sunk because it was unable. It it did not have the ability, or so you thought, to really change your heart, to change your life. And some of you are here this morning, and your boat is sunk. You can look out and you say, yeah, I'm going to heaven. But these two scriptures, as it were, have left holes in the bow of your boat, and you think Christianity has no power to change your daily life. When push comes to shove, you lack the power or the ability to overcome those stubborn habits, or so you think. Um, this is a serious issue. It is just as serious as if you put $100,000 into a speedboat that sunk in your backyard. Christ paid for your speedboat, so to speak, with his own blood. He's got more than $10,000 worth in your salvation. Oh, yeah. And I'm here to tell you that his salvation not only is intended to get you to heaven, but his salvation is to change your daily life. It's to change the words that come out of your mouth. It's to change the thoughts that go through your mind. It's to change your orientation and your disposition and to get down into your attitudes and deal with your pride and your jealousy and, and racial issues and other things that lurk inside every one of our hearts. I'm here to tell you, if this book means anything, 
if the, the work of Christ means anything. It did not give you a boat with two holes in it. We need to plug those holes this morning. Okay, quickly. Seven reasons I'm telling you the truth. Number one, if you want to understand the Bible, the first thing you need is context. Look at Romans 7, verse 1. It gives you the context for the entire chapter. And it's the only chapter that is written this way. Look at what it says in verse 1. Or do you not know brothers? Now listen to this. This is the qualifying statement of Romans 7. Brothers. What brothers is he talking about? For I am speaking to those who know the law. Romans 7 is not written for every born-again Christian. Romans 7 is written for the Jews and the moralists. Verse 1 says so. So the very context of Romans 7 gives us our first clue. And he summarizes that by saying that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. Now that's an interesting thing. So, so, so the, the two verses we're looking at, I can't do what I want to do. Who is saying that? This is not the, the, the born-again Christian living in the Holy Spirit. That's said by the Jew and the moralist who is not born again, but who has the law. That's the context of Romans 7. The second evidence is the next illustration that's given. Look at verses 2 and 3. For a married man is bound by law, uh, uh, I'm sorry, uh, for a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from the law. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Now, what we're talking about here is a common understood Jewish practice uh, that uh, marriage is uh, to be permanent. And, but if a spouse dies or for some reason is disqualified, that they're no longer under the law of marriage. Now this is a reference back to Romans chapter 6, where it says that uh, we, we died with Christ. And so this illustration that's given right here in Romans 2 and 3 is referring now to those who are in Christ who have died to the law, and we are no longer bound by that particular law. The third reason. Paul gives here a powerful explanation of the law, and it's best seen in Romans chapter 7, verse 6. It's... In fact, in, the, in your notes, um, you can, I would encourage you to write in the margin of your, your notes three laws, underline it. Write those two words, three laws, underline it. I'm going to give you the three laws, and, and if you don't understand this, you will not be able to properly understand Romans 7. There are three laws mentioned in Romans 
7 and 8. Number one is the written law, the moral law of God, what we know as the Ten Commandments. That's law number one. One, written law or moral law. That's the law of God, what we call the Ten Commandments. And then put two. Law two is the law of sin. It's the, the law or the sure enough, it's bound to happen, that we have within us, all humanity is under law two, which is the law of sin. Now, if all there were were two laws, we would conclude Romans 7 is for all of us. But the reason I can guarantee you Romans 7 is not for all of us is there is a third law. Put three. It's the law of the Spirit, capital S. It's the law of the Spirit. Now, look at Romans 7, verse 6. But now we are released from the law. That's the first law. Having died to that which held us captive, that's the second law. So that we serve in the new way of the Spirit. That's the third law. All three laws are in that one verse. We're free from the first law because we died to the second law, and we are now under the third law, the law of the Holy Spirit. We're going to see this next week when we have the privilege of looking at Romans chapter 8, but I just want to show us, look at verse 2 of Romans chapter 8. For the law of the Spirit, that's the third law, has set us free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death, that's the second law, for God has done what the law, that's the first law, weakened by the flesh, that's the second law, could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin he condemns sin in the flesh. That's law number two. In order that the righteous requirements of the law, that's law number one, might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit, that's law number three. Got it? It's powerful. I'm telling you, you want to understand the book of Romans, you have to understand those three laws. The same word law is used three different ways, and it's perfectly clear what each of those three ways are. And if you don't understand it, you, you will leave here today with a sunk boat. The reason you can leave here in a speedboat with the plugs in is because of the third law, the law of the Spirit. Hallelujah. Amen? Yeah. Hallelujah. Okay, so three, three reasons. The fourth reason is the law of the Spirit. Now this is one we're going to unpack further next week because chapter 8 is all about the work of the Holy Spirit in the believer's life. But there is no way Romans 7 fully develops the work of the Holy Spirit until we get to chapter 8. But it is that law that is, is perhaps the biggest uh, clinching argument of all. But the fifth reason, what is the purpose of the book of Romans? We saw in Romans chapter 1, verse 5, the purpose. It's... Uh, it says, 
through whom, that's through Christ, we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations. That's the purpose of the book of Romans. If you think Romans 7 is the norm of the Christian life, then you're saying the purpose of Romans will never be accomplished. How can the work of Christ and the purpose of the book of Romans be to bring about the obedience of faith when obedience is not even possible? Obviously, Romans 7 is not talking about the normal Christian life. It's talking about a struggle that we all contend with, but it is not the final answer. The sixth reason we can say Romans 7 is not written to describe the, the normal Christian experience is what we looked at last week in Romans chapter 6 and what a job Don Thomas did in bringing this word to us. But look at what it says, Romans 6, verse 3 and 4. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead to the glory of the Father, we too, now listen to these words, we too might walk in newness of life. That is not Romans 7. Romans 7, there is no newness of life. This is talking about what Christ has done. The whole death, burial, and resurrection of Christ proves to us that God did not go through all that to leave us under the power of sin, unable to get victory over those stubborn areas of temptation. No, when, when Christ died, you and I died. When he was buried, you and I were buried. That is, our old nature was buried. And when Christ was raised, we now have newness of life in which we walk. And the work of Christ in us continues to change us. And the seventh reason, it's, it's really the whole message of the book of Romans, it is the gospel. What is the gospel? The gospel is the power of God for the salvation of all who believe. The power to get us to heaven, yes, but the power to change our lives. When it says that the gospel is the power of God, if we continue living thinking that I just can't do the things I want to do, I'll never, I'll never be able to get victory over this stuff I'm dealing with. I'm just stuck in this rinse cycle of confessing my sins and receiving forgiveness, but nothing's ever going to change. That is not the power of the gospel. In some ways, some of us today need to be born again, again. When you received Christ, you received forgiveness of sins and you received the gift of eternal life. Praise God. There's nothing like it. But when you received Christ, you not only received freedom from the penalty of sin, that is judgment and separation from God in hell, the free gift of eternal life, you not only received 
deliverance from the penalty of sin. When you received Christ, you received freedom from the power of sin. So any, any sin that has been your Achilles heel that you have continued to fall into, don't find consolation in Romans 7. Oh, I just, I can so much relate to this. I just, I'm just always, I, I just will never be able to do the things I want to do. No. Don't stay there. That is the expression of someone who has been under law number one, and that law number one stirred up law number two. Don't stay there. The whole message of the gospel, the whole message of Christ is that for us there is newness of life. Just as Christ was raised from the dead and he was broken out of the results of sin in his body, so Christ in us is able to break the power of sin off of us as well. Praise God. Don't leave here with your fancy boat on the bottom of the canal. Plug up the holes in the bow with the truth that if anyone is in Christ, he, she, we are new creation. And in Christ, there is power to change. Power to change. And if you did what I suggested and wrote in the margin that stubborn sin that comes to your mind when you think of how you're failing God today, you can take that today and bring it to Christ and say, Lord, give me victory over this. I, I, I can't do it on my own. That's true. I'm fully convinced I cannot change myself, but that's why I'm a Christian. I ask you, Jesus, to change my life. Whatever it is, you can bring it to him today, and God will change you. I promise you. This is the gospel. Let's stand together. Worship team, if you would come and prepare to, to give us some space to, to meet God. I, I want to I just encourage us. Please stand with me. I want to encourage us to take this moment of response. I, I want to invite you as, as we sing together, I want to encourage you to come. You're not joining the church. This isn't uh, to be baptized. This is a time to meet God. I, I literally, and, and why, why come? Well, you've got to admit, coming is a little humbling. Man, I'm going to walk down front. What's Humbling is where it starts. You want to change? You've got to humble yourself. You're going to change? You've got to ask for help. We're not going to give you a microphone to, to tell your sin to the, to the world. But I want to encourage you to come down to tell it to God. To say, Lord, I, I'm putting myself on the line here. I want you to change me. 
I want you to take the power that is in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and I want you to put that in me. I want you to, to do in me what's impossible. I want to know more this third law, the law of the Holy Spirit. And you know what the Holy Spirit does? He takes the first law, the moral law, and he writes that on your heart. So it's no longer external, it's internal. And what that means is now inside of you, God will change your orientation. He will change your motivation. So, so that now there's a want to. And not only the want to, but there is the power to pull it off. And every, every step of obedience is, Lord, thank you. I could never have done that without you. That is the normal Christian life. More of the third law, the law of the Spirit. Taking the first law and writing it inside. Changing our orientation. Let's sing. As we sing, I want to just give us some space and then we'll all be dismissed. But let's just, let's just hold this moment. You can offer yourself to the Lord right where you stand and, and God bless you if you choose to do that. But some of you, I know you will want to come and respond this morning.